Well, good evening, everybody. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Some exciting things to go through here tonight. If you were with us last week, you know that uh, uh, Peter and Bo got into Revelation chapter 3. But there is so much here. Uh, we really felt like we wanted to make sure that we had covered uh, the significant portions of this final of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And, and as was shared last week, uh, the final uh, letter that we find here to the church of Laodicea is an incredibly relevant one. I, I loved how uh, Bo pointed out the parallels between a movement that we see in uh, uh, evangelical circles called progressive Christianity. That is substituting a relationship with God and even redefining salvation, not as something individual, but as something corporate. In other words, God wants to bring salvation in the sense of cleaning up uh, societies and cultures from their, their shared systemic sins and so forth. Well, you know, again, there is no letter that you will find that Jesus wrote that is as intensely and immensely personal as this one, getting down to cases about what it means to have a right-on church. Sean, could you just give us a brief overview of what these letters, the seven churches, are all about and, and uh, what brings us to this place tonight? Yeah, for those of you who are with us in our study of the church of Ephesus, we want to start the same place as we finished so that we have an idea of what this is all about. And what's interesting about the seven churches and the interpretations that are available, we want to make sure we give you all more information rather than less so that the Holy Spirit can lead you into all truth, as is our job and hope as well. Now, when he's addressing the seven churches in chapters two through three of this book, we're given an overview of the book as a whole and the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. Right. The things that were, obviously, the resurrected Christ. John was looking back and remembered, I was there for that. Yeah. The things that are are what are being addressed here and now, the churches, the church age, and the interpretations therein are fairly unique. Um, when it comes to the main perspectives, I'm sure there's some oddball with a blog somewhere that have something new, but <laughs> when it comes to those that actually have some spiritual heft, we want to narrow them down to three for you for the sake of time. The first is a prophetic overview of the church as a whole. I'm sure all of you who've read the Bible or heard these sort of uh, gematria-based studies, the study of numbers, seven is always in significance to something in completion, to holiness, the right. seven spirits of God, the seven uh, eyes of the Lamb, and we'll talk about the significance seven of that. Seven days of creation and so forth. Yeah, and uh, the significance of that is applied to these churches as well, that obviously uh, there was a reason Jesus chose these seven as opposed to all the other churches. These weren't the only seven churches in existence. Or the most significant. Yeah, and but uh, being nice to the mailman, they all followed one trade route. But Jesus showed these churches out to be an example of what, according to this interpretation, would define the church as a whole. Now, the strengths of that are also found in Scripture. For example, in Joel 2, 28-32, were given in its immediate context a reminder to Israel that they would be restored even in the midst of God's wrath. But then we see it later quoted in Romans 10, 9-13 as applying to all of mankind, so something individual and at the same time universal. That is a legitimate interpretation. The problem, though, is that gematria, or the study of the significance of numbers, can sometimes draw attention away from the letters if you take it too far. So we don't want to overemphasize that either. Yeah, and uh, one of the problems that uh, you get into with people who say, well, these seven churches prophetically represented the uh, successive dominant condition of the church down through time. Uh, the, the big problem with that is nobody can agree where one starts and the other finishes. Yeah, they and would. They, they've got very different ideas about uh, whether, uh, say, for instance, the uh, the church at Thyatira was the church in the Middle Age, whether Sardis that had a name was alive was dead was the church during the Protestant Reformation, and so, and, and so you know, could be in broad strokes that this is representative of the general tenor of the church down through time. But I think it's safest to say that these seven churches were selected because they would represent the dominant challenges that the church 
would go through down through time. And if you want to pick any era in the history of the time from when Jesus ascended into heaven till he comes back for us at the rapture, you are going to find here on planet Earth doing land office business churches that represent these conditions uh, down through time. And individuals. Yeah. So when we're talking about these things, a prophetic overview, a uh, prophetic scope of the timeline of the church age, or perhaps just written to these churches and where they're at spiritually and apply accordingly, we would want you to make up your own mind. And I think there's room for all three. But when it comes to the application and definition of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 is where we start. It's profitable for proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that we should be equipped for every good work. And that is such a good point to bring up because one of the, the problems that you run into when you know people get into this prophetic overview uh, point of view, and like I say, it's got its merits, but the problem is uh, it's really easy to dodge and say, well, we're not that church. That church is really messed up. We're not that. We are, you know, we're all, I, I think, truth be told, if you ever read through the letters of the seven churches, most of us would want to say that corporately and individually, we're all the church at Philadelphia because Jesus doesn't have anything to say correcting them. And, uh, you know, if there's a spirit of the age, there's a lot of people that go to church not because they want to be challenged but because they want to have their prejudices confirmed. So we, we really have to be careful about that. Even a uh, church as off track and out of kilter as the church at Laodicea not only has a lot to say about what the condition of the church is in our day and age, and, and I think uh, Peter and Bo did a great job of pointing that out, but they also have very important things to say to us as individuals in our relationship with God. Don't you agree? Absolutely. So starting off with this, uh, let's just take a quick moment to remind ourselves, Revelation categorically is the only book of prophecy in the New Testament, that the Bible is divided into three sections, not just in chronological order. With history, Genesis through Esther is largely event by event in this order. Then in the book of Job, we're suddenly back in Genesis timeline-wise. What happened? Well, we're in a new category. Job through Song of Solomon is poetry, Isaiah through Malachi's prophecy. And in the, maybe my math's off, but 17, I believe, books of prophecy in the Old Testament, we are limited to one, but an understanding of the Old Testament and how it portrayed these books of prophecy as opposed to poetry or history would come in handy. So noting the purpose of prophecy, what should we be looking for when we read this? Is it what happened? Is it guiding emotions and how we feel about what happened? Or is it noting something from a particular perspective and goal? Prophecy defined from Scripture is in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3, speaking edification, right. exhortation, and comfort to men. So in the book of Revelation, when you see it, you know, shown in movies as an excuse to use all of this CGI and nightmarish effects and the end of the world scenarios and stuff. No, any book of prophecy is meant with these three goals in mind. Edification, which is the what you need to know, building someone up in knowledge, whether it's a warning or a note of information that'll help, that's to be determined. Exhortation is the how, building someone up, how to act on the edification. Answering and, the question, so what? Yeah, yeah, and of course, comfort, giving peace to someone who needs it, someone who's uh, asking, so why do I do this if I'm uh, you know, so horrible? Then why would I even bother fixing myself? Well, understand you're not that bad. <laughs> it's yeah. that point being made. So speaking from God's perspective, and literally in this case, Jesus is speaking to this church with these three goals in mind. And Peter and Bo last week covered the edification fantastically. Let's read the passage. In verse 15, it says in Revelation chapter 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So, interestingly enough, uh, this description of their works is that they disgust me. And he also goes on to say, you don't know how bad off you are without me. In verse 17, you say, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That is where we will begin today's study. Now, isn't that significant? Um, these are all categories of their spiritual lack. But the greatest lack they had was even knowing they had a lack. 
right? Right. Yeah, it's almost like the person who says, well, I don't want to go to the doctor because if I go to the doctor, they might find out something's wrong with me. Well, something's already wrong with you. All the doctor does is put his finger on what's really happening, what's the problem, and hopefully finding a solution. But at that point, the church at Laodicea, and it's really interesting, I love the point that Peter made about this, is that uh, the warning that Jesus gave earlier in the passage about the deeds of the Nicolaitans, remember them? Uh, They were the ones, literally it means the ones who conquered over the people. It was the idea of a uh, a clergy or priesthood dominated church where it's like, who are you to question me about anything? Maybe. Uh, you know, and, and that's that's a real possibility as far as the Nicolaitans were concerned. The Laodiceans are the polar opposite. It, it literally means the people rule. And, and so, you know, it's very uh, significant. There's some people will say, well, you know, at Calvary Christian Fellowship, what form of church government do you follow? And uh, it's very interesting how the New Testament really doesn't give us a specific form of church government. It does talk about leaders, and it does talk about the character of leaders that should be involved with the church for sure. But the actual manifestation of how church leadership operates is really left uh, open for discussion you know, really three kind of models that you find in the Bible as far as church leadership is concerned. One is rule by the people, uh, majority vote, if you will. And that's very democratic and very American and resonates with us because, you know, by golly, we were raised to look at that. There's really no really good example of where the people were leading that it ended up uh, getting God's people anywhere good. Uh, maybe uh, Numbers 14 is the greatest example of that. When the majority report came back from scouting the land and they said, uh, you know, it's filled with giants and uh, these big cities and devours its inhabitants. And the minority report, Joshua and Caleb said, uh, yeah, that's all true, but God's with us and we can take it. I know. Let's take a vote. Let's stone Moses. <laughs> and as a result of the majority report, that blamed God and said, oh, you know, you've let us out here to die. Uh, Well, God said, uh, well, because you said we've led you and your children out here to die, children are going to go in, you're not. Uh, Now, really, we don't see uh, Jesus saying to the disciples, "Uh, think about going to Jerusalem. What do you guys think? Let's take a vote. Uh, No, we, we don't really see that. There's the other point of view. There's congregational rule. And then there's the idea of elder rule, that it's rule by a board of leaders of gifted men. And we see that modeled again with the disciples Uh, in uh, the book of Acts. There's a number of of incidences where they really did need to have that kind of guidance and direction. And and I think there's a case to be made for elder-ruled churches. And then there is pastorally-led churches. That is, the pastor is the one, the buck stops here, guys, sort of the Moses model, if you will, uh, of ministry. And, and, and so, you know, we, we see these different models. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, if I had a nickel for every time I've sat down and gotten into hooting and hollering debates with people about which one is most biblical, uh, you know, I think we can kind of throw out uh, congregational rule because that never really works. But elder rule versus pastorally led rule. The the bottom line is it's the heart that you bring to it. It's not the system that is ever the solution, you see. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, I found this system in the Scripture, and if we can just implement elder rule, then all will be well. Well, a a smaller group of men can be just as deceived as an individual, and an individual can be just as deceived as a smaller group of men. You know, there's no guarantees. The only guarantee that you will have that you're being led by the Spirit of God is the heart and character of the people behind it. So, you know, very important that that we understand that. These guys, we really don't know how this was led. Maybe it was congregationally led. Maybe that's what got them into some problems. We really don't know that for sure. But the bottom line is they were pretty deceived, weren't they? Yeah, and it's not obviously to the degree of, say, Thyatira, where they had a deliberate false teacher in power. But noting their exhortation was regarding their neglect 
of how much they needed Jesus. He brings to mind and makes several references to what are directly going to tie into what we start with today, and that is exhortation. So with the longest intro I'm sure you've ever heard, (laughs) let's continue on to verse 18. It says in Revelation chapter 3, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So in verse 18, we have, and I'm sure you've been anticipating this since we got started, Revelation is the dream of someone who loves Old Testament references because these are full of them. You can't get through maybe two verses Revelation without three references back to something that's already been said. And that should be a hint. If you're reading the book Revelation and that's where you started, you're missing out on a lot. It's like starting a TV series and ending with a series finale. There's so many references. These people are assumed to be known. Why do they expect this of me? Well, they put that in the back for a reason. Who is that butler and why did he do it? Yeah. (laughs) So when we're talking about the references here, he's obviously using language fairly intentionally. And the church of Laodicea, not only living in Laodicea, but also knowing their Old Testament, given the early church was majority Jewish, they knew their OT. And so was the, the city of Laodicea. Yeah. yeah. So noting this Jewish province, and uh, it's Had probably... a significant Jewish uh, population. Yeah. And uh, not to make any uh, anti-Semitic jokes, it's probably pro-Semitic, but no wonder they were so wealthy. Continuing on. Um, the first one was gold refined in the fire. The reference there is in Job 23 and verse 10, which I'll read to you. Job speaking says, but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, the context of this passage, obviously, we don't want to jump into a chapter like we own the place. But this was in response to one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, accusing Job of being judged for his sin. Your circumstances couldn't have happened to someone unless they had done something wrong. You know, John chapter 9 out the window. And Job said, God knows my character. And I think that at the end of all this, it's only just going to prove that all the more. And the Apostle Peter, in fact, quotes from this passage as well, just to confirm the interpretation, when he references persecution as something that isn't meaningless, that it's something that can prove God's work in you, not just to oppose it. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, we read, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold. Note the reference. Why did Jesus reference that as gold? It's noted in both contexts as in regards to improvement in the midst of persecution. But a special kind of gold, right? Yeah, though it is tested by by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So noting this first reference, why does Jesus mention, buy from me gold refined in the fire? Like Peter and Bo mentioned last week, they hadn't seen a lot of persecution yet. But he is able to equip them with the ability to not only endure persecution, but come out all the better. So that's his first reference. The second reference is also equally significant in white garments that you may be clothed, and as a two-parter here, that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, those of you who remember Genesis probably catch that second reference, but let's go in order. The first reference was to Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 4, where the angel of the Lord speaking said to those who stood before him, take away the filthy garments from him, the high priest Joshua, and then to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. That's a reference to sin, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now, the context of this obviously didn't start in verse 4. It started in verse 1. The prophet Zechariah, who was living at the time of Ezra, by the way, was shown a vision of the high priest Joshua, and the accuser, Satan, was accusing him before God's throne. And the angel of the Lord, we believe as a appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And Satan just goes, Look at how he's dressed. I mean, who wears white after Labor Day? No, that's that's the point being made. And he says, okay, take that away from him and put on him clean robes. And says, look, I've removed your iniquity, literally your sin from you. So this first reference in the Old Testament parallels in prophetic symbolism sin with dirty robes. And this is also used in Isaiah chapter uh, 6, I believe, as well. And 
clean robes with a right relationship with God. Now, you're wondering, I I don't uh, get the reference. Doesn't it say white robes? Well, if you've been with us in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appearing in glory, he was clothed in white robes. So note the symbol, note the parallel. This has already been defined for us. Jesus is clothed in white robes because he is perfect before God, and he will take his robes and put it on us. That's a direct reference to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Yeah, and uh, in Revelation 19, we were told that uh, the white robes are the righteous deeds of the saints. I love what uh, Isaiah 61 and verse 10 says about this. It's beautiful. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Right. So noting that parallel, when Jesus tells them, buy from me white robes that you may be clothed, he's saying, don't depend on your right relationship with God. That's just going to put you in Joshua's category. You know this reference. Buy my robes from me and I'll clothe you just like I did with him and not just him, but also someone or some people who came before him. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 21, you remember that when Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves after they had sinned, they chose fig leaves, which anyone who's gone on a nature hike and uh, attempted such a brush with nature knows a rash soon followed. God clothed them with the skin of an animal. And not only that, but it's significant to note that was the first recorded death of anything in creation in a physical sense. Adam and Eve had already died spiritually, but the sacrificial system came from that. A lamb was killed, we believe, and the clothing that covered their shame came not from their own efforts, but from God's. And we could note this further detailed in the book of Galatians. Have you been made perfect by the Spirit or now being made complete by the flesh? How are you going to do this in your own efforts? The Church of Laodicea, like we talked about last week, was making that mistake of saying, so I'm, I'm doing some good stuff here, right? No, 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 let me do some good stuff here. Yeah. That's the continued mistake Laodicea made. Yeah, and uh, they, they reference buy from me. Some people, that throws them off. I mean, how can we buy something from Jesus. Well, it's the idea of an investment, which was something that would really resonate with the people in Laodicea. Uh, You know, they had, uh, I guess their investments had paid off in a material sense. But what Jesus is saying is, I want you to invest in something that's going to last forever. Yeah, because their main exports weren't only in textiles and in relation to Sardis, a lot of minted coins, but there was something else they were known for selling. Yeah, I salve. Yeah. Yeah, it was the pink eye capital of the world, if you will. So So continuing on with that, his exhortation in verse 18 is just that, is reminding them, okay, here's your problems, your works disgust me, but note, how can you fix that? Do the things through me. And he makes Old Testament after Old Testament reference to the sort of things that you could only be given from God, this dependence on the spirit rather than relying on the flesh. But after this point, you're just like, well, I'm in the flesh. Does this even mean that I'm really saved? And unfortunately, a lot of people have made that conclusion. Yeah, we get a ch- lot of that on our radio program. Yeah, if yeah. you're in the Church of Laodicea, you can even very remotely associate yourself with this sort of attitude. Am I really saved? Am I of those who belong to Jesus? Well, if I'm what making is- Jesus sick, <laughs> is there any hope for me? Well, what does verse 19 say? Here is... Uh, the, the gift that keeps on giving, the gift no one wants, but the gift we all need. The comfort of the prophecy. It says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, a couple things about this. Jesus said, as many as I love. Now, the word love there is really specific in the original language. Most of us think, well, that must be that agape love of God. It's not. The word here is phileo. It refers to brotherly love, not the unconditional love of God, as we would define agape. But phileo means the city of brotherly love. Oh, yo, where Rocky came from and all that. You know, really interesting that Jesus would use that word. Why? Uh, because there are, are those who think that, well, you know, Jesus loves us, but he only loves us because he's perfect and he kind of has to. You know, he loves us but he doesn't like us very much. You know, we're really kind of a pain in the neck to him. Uh, That's not true at all. And I love the fact that the Lord used that term 
phileo instead of agape here, because in John chapter 15 and verse 14, uh, we could begin at, uh, at verse, I guess we could begin all the way back at uh, verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I've made known to you. Wow, do you realize what an amazing privilege that is? That God doesn't have kind of this antiseptic sort of distant, well, I'm God, I guess I have to put up with them. No, he actually enjoys your company. He actually looks at you because of what Jesus has done as a friend, something he has in common with, something he longs to spend time with. And we'll, we'll see that driven home here in just a second. And noting as well, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Well, that really throws out the interpretation that this is speaking to someone who isn't saved because no one punishes, or no decent person, punishes the neighbor's kid. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, which is referencing, again, the Old Testament, Hebrews th- or Hebrews, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, the greatest assurance of our salvation we could have short of being in heaven itself. Yeah, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, even as a father the son in whom his heart delights. And the author of Hebrews goes on to make the point that if you had earthly parents, who you weren't disowned from, by the way, that corrected you as seems right to them, how much more will we be corrected by the Father of lights and live? So noting that relationship is in place for the Church of Laodicea. God doesn't say, well, uh, there were kind of seven lampstands, but let's be honest, there were really only six, because you can't call that my church. No, he says, I'm walking in the midst of your lampstand. He says, to the church of Laodicea. He's recognizing them as his people, but correcting them, which isn't a sign that they aren't his people, but the greatest proof that they are. With a decided purpose in mind. Notice he corrects them. Why? What is he looking for? Therefore, be zealous and repent. The word zealous in the original language literally means to make something hot. Now, now notice Jesus earlier had said, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Uh, what, What Jesus is saying is, I want you to be hot. I want you to be zealous for me. And and I love that because I'll tell you what, in, uh, in ministry, I've discovered something. Who are the hardest people to reach in ministry? It's not the local head of the American atheists. It's not. It's not an individual who has hit bottom and, you know, maybe they had walked with the Lord for a while, but they're just, they're they're feeling like they're really trashed and how, how can I possibly come close to God because, you know, of all that I've done. Those aren't the hardest people to reach. You know who the hardest people to reach I've discovered in ministry are? The lukewarm. The comfortable. Uh, the, the, the people, and, and I used to call it the... the uh, church kid syndrome, because I first came face-to-face with this when I was in youth ministry. You know, when you would uh, try to reach out, say, to these kids that were on the campus of Calabasas High School that, you know, were just lost out there, and, and, you know, they had more money than they knew what to do with, but they were so empty in their hearts, man, they would just gravitate the gospel like you wouldn't believe. And, 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 you know, when you would reach people, say, you know, from some of the tougher areas and, uh, and they, they had nothing and you told them about the riches of Christ, man, they were really easy to reach. The toughest people to reach are the kids that grew up in church because you'd start to share God's word with them and they had like the Star Trek deflector shield that they would put up. They'd say, you start to share what the Lord said. I know, I know, I know that. You know, you don't have to tell me that. I know that. You know, I was in this program, and I memorized all those passages of Scripture, and I know, and, and, and they are so bored with Jesus, bored with Christian things. I, that has always astounded me as someone that came from the outside in to a relationship with God, not being raised in the church, that someone 
could look at the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and that this Jesus wants to come into our hearts and to impact our lives. And you tell them that message, and they're oh, really great. I've heard that a million times. These are the toughest people to reach because they're not hot or cold. Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold because people who are hot don't need reaching. People who are cold desperately know they need reaching, but the ones in the middle think everything is just groovy, man. And, you know, I mean, my dear sainted grandma prayed for me, and I know all the verses, and I can quote early church fathers, and I've got my theology in place where my T's are crossed and my I's are dotted. But the idea of really knowing Jesus, really having an encounter with him, really having him touch and minister to your heart, it's just foreign, just foreign to him. Or just not as relevant as it used to be, because we're not just talking about people who need the Lord. It's people who have the Lord and don't know how good they have it. Yeah. Yeah. So continuing on, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, this one is famous, especially among those who would side in the camp of salvation is the decision we have to make that God is knocking on the door of your heart, and if you receive him, then he will dwell with you. And obviously, this causes a lot of controversy among those who are passionate about what they believe. Imagine that. But noting that the hot colliding with the hot isn't a bad thing, but it needs to be an informed thing, people will obviously say, no, salvation is a choice. I have to receive Jesus. This is something he has given me the dignity to say or to say no to. And those who would emphasize the opposite and say, no, God says, those whom I called, these who I have chosen. In John chapter 15 and verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And then goes on to note in the context of this, by the way, an audience that were already his disciples, not threatening those who may not be. Judas had already left. So those who take this position say that uh, it's not our choice, God chose us. Which is biblically true, that God has a say in who has a relationship with him. And this makes people uncomfortable because they ask, well, what what if he didn't choose me? And the most appropriate response I've ever heard to that conversation is, well, would you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The person usually making this objection would say, well, no, I don't want to give him my life. Well, maybe he didn't choose you. Well, that's not fair. How, How come God gets to choose? He says, well, you want him right now. He says, no, I don't want it. Well, then it's your fault, isn't it? (laughs) Because when it comes to this exchange, both people are essentially saying the same thing, is if you don't have Jesus, you don't have Jesus. First law of logic, the law of identity, A equals A. Jesus is Jesus. You have the Savior, you are with the Savior. And those, I think, who can harmonize both positions well, which, by the way, we affirm, is in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. Little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Being realistic, he goes on to say, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation. There's a uh, fun word of the day. Atoning sacrifice. Yeah, a ransom note. For our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So in harmonizing this scenario we're left in, where God is knocking at the door of our heart, we first recognize God's the one knocking. He knows who's going to answer. But we still have to answer. How do you make sense of that? Well, as our friend Robert Fur oftentimes says, God's sovereignty is big enough to allow for free will. Yeah. But noting this point in invitation, it's just as much meaningful and personal as it is culturally significant. Isn't yeah, there, there's another uh, aspect of this that gets to be a debate. Some people will say, well, you know, these evangelists, they say, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And, you know, if the Lord's knocking on your heart, you need to, to answer that call. They would say, well, you know, in context, that's not what he's saying. He's talking to a church here. And so it's like Jesus is standing outside of the church of Laodicea, and he's knocking at the door of the church. And, you know, if they would uh, just open the door, he would come into them collectively. It's a collective interpretation here. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen some people look very pleased with themselves for pointing that out. But here's the problem. Yeah, Jesus was standing on the outside, in a sense, looking in at what was going on at Laodicea. But what was the cure? Notice the careful language here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, not everyone, 
But if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice the individualistic language that's involved there. And this is a really important point for us to understand because a lot of people will say, oh, the church, the church is so messed up. And the church does this, and the church does that, and, and they, they want to say, in a sense, distance themselves from this sort of uh, amorphous, uh, sort of ethereal concept out there somewhere that we call the church, you see. But all the word church literally means is those who are called out. It, it means this, we are the church, that, that each and every one of us is a part of the body of Christ. Now, granted, there are denominational organizations who do things and, you know, we kind of duck and cover when they get into trouble in the news and, and so on. But the, the, the bottom line is this. Jesus sees the church, not just corporately as the body of Christ, but in 1 Corinthians 12, notice Paul makes again that distinction that you are individually members of it. You know, and then just as a body has different members. So the church, even though it's one body, has different members with different functions. And that all of those functions are absolutely necessary for the proper operation and function of the church. And so if we find ourselves going, man, I just think I'm living in Laodicea. You know, I just thought, oh, the church really has, oh, the church really needs to be revived. Oh, the church really needs to get back to the word. Oh, the church needs to be more involved with missions. Oh, the church needs to be more involved with evangelism. Oh, if only people in the church, why is it only 15% of the people do 80% of the work and, and all this stuff? Here's the solution. You decide to be different. There's nothing our flesh would enjoy more. Then to sit around and say, well, when the church gets its act together, then maybe I'll be zealous for God. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for that revival to happen. When that revival happens, then I'll get on, get on the uh, Jesus train, so to speak. Why is no one coming up and praying with me? Yeah. That'd be a reminder to go and see if you can find someone to pray with. Exactly. Be different. That's what Jesus is saying to individuals in Laodicea, I'm sure there were people there that were just, their eyes were probably as big as saucers and going, oh, I thought everything was okay and everything's not as good as I don't know. What did I do? What Jesus is saying is, you respond to my invitation. And it's an invitation. He's standing at the door and knocking. And I think it is completely valid in an evangelistic sense to tell nonbelievers that's what Jesus is doing. If you sense that drawing work, don't turn your back on it. But notice what we are invited to. If anyone hears my voice, now notice faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. We have to hear God's voice to respond to that knock and opens the door that is as a choice of our will we pray and we invite Christ in our heart. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I will come into him. Now notice where Jesus dwells individually. I will come in to him. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus isn't out there somewhere in the great beyond, in a sense. He dwells through his spirit in the hearts of every believer. If Christ hasn't indwelt you through his spirit, if you don't have the spirit of God in you, you're not saved at all. Romans chapter 8 makes that very, very plain. But notice, when we invite him, he comes in and dine with him and he with me. Now, uh, really interesting word, dine here. The, the invitation to this dinner with Jesus. There were different names for different meals that would happen in that culture. It was almost like Lord of the Rings where they have where second Mary, breakfast. Mary and Pippin are wondering, does he know about 11th and second breakfast? And, you know, they had these different kinds of meals that they would have. This is a very specific kind of meal that was the most, I guess, time open meal that you would have. It was the meal that was designed to revolve around fellowship around ex enjoying relationship with one another. I don't know if you've ever gone out to dinner with someone who's like a slow eater. You know, sometimes, man, I, I, I eat like I'm on a mission. And uh, my brother, uh, my little brother, Eric, 
you know, used to be a, of that, uh, that opinion. But he had a life-changing encounter with my grandmother one day when my grandmother was like, quit shoveling your food, you know? You just need to slow down while you eat. Well, to this day, I mean, we, we kind of laugh about it. My brother and I uh, look at my little brother and say, he's reclining at table again because he just takes his own sweet time and he chews the food and he's not in any kind of... And, and it all came down to that, that conversation he had with my grandmother about shoveling the food. He's not going to do that anymore. He's traumatized by it. But, but the, 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 the neat thing about it is he's on to something. Because when you're not looking at a meal as something, well, it's an accomplishment, I get this done, I can get on to other things. When you're taking your time eating, what happens? Conversation happens. And conversation and sharing happens and relationship happens. And that's the kind of dining that Jesus specifically uses the word to describe. You know what that tells me? He likes hanging out with you. Does that kind of boggle your mind? You know, sometimes I think Jesus like, oh, boy, Richard's kid again. Well, I'll go in there and fix that, and I'm out of here. No, he enjoys spending time with us, which obviously raises the convicting issue. Do we really enjoy spending time with him? You know, or do we kind of rattle through our prayers real quick and make sure that we get our Lord's Prayer in or your prayer of Jabez or whatever prayer you're praying these days, you know, so that you're you know, you'll find a parking place downtown or you won't get hit by a meteor and, you know, we get through all that. No, God wants you to learn to enjoy him. There was a book out that was called Practicing the Presence of God. And I, and I love that title because learning just to hang out with the Lord not rushing through your prayers, but maybe praying a little bit, reading a little bit, asking the Lord through his spirit to minister to you a little bit and giving it time. Boy, that can revolutionize your life. And, and I'm not saying be a slave to the clock. You know, there are those moments where all we can manage to get in is, you know, the two-word prayer, Lord, help. And that's fine. But God wants Maybe for you to get away from things for a little while, turn off the cell phone, set it aside, and just hang out with Jesus. He wants to share a meal with you. You know, and, and, and his meal, it's awesome stuff. You know, he'll, he'll give you that new wine of his spirit. He'll give you the bread of life, which is his word. And, and he wants you to enjoy that. He wants you, as my little brother uh, does, to recline at table with him and just make sure that you enjoy all of that. It's this beautiful image here. And notice it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, what's this deal about thrones here? Well, it's obviously something the cults love to jump on, but we need to recognize, first of all, this is something Jesus grants to us. It's not something that is owed to us by nature. It's also important to note as well that the Church of Laodicea's main miss, if you will, was not appreciating the good thing they, they uh, not appreciating, excuse me, the good thing that they had. And when they receive from Jesus the things that he offers them, he would not only give them the basic adequacies of spiritual life, but more than they could imagine, more than this world would have to offer. Now, those with an agenda would say, see, you can become God. You will sit on the throne of God because of what Jesus has done. This is what um, many groups call deification, if you will. The problem is when we talk about the sort of things that makes one deity, I know that a lot of Internet scholars and so forth want to blur these lines while denying the implications of what they say. But here's the difference. Someone who's a prophet, literally a spokesman, for example, they can in of themselves speak, love, and teach insofar as their humanity by nature is concerned, they can of themselves talk. Their mama taught them how. Right. They can teach. They have the ability to use their brains in a functional way. They can even love. They know how to relate to people in as far as their humanity goes. They can represent God. Right. But then in that representation, what is only possible because of what God's doing through you? That's not what a prophet can do by nature. A prophet can't forgive sins. Well, Sean, what about John chapter 20 and verse 23? It says, well, the sins that you remit are remitting, and the sins that you withhold are withheld. Well, yeah, what was the verse before it? 
Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth I am giving to you. I am giving. Notice the same language as that throne. Right. You are given that authority because of relation to Jesus, not who you are by nature. It says, Why do you, who made you the apostle Peter? No, who made you Jesus Christ? Because if you remember Luke uh, chapter 5 and verse 21, a good question was asked. Why does this man blaspheme? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, if I, in my power and authority go and start forgiving people's sins, it means nothing. But if as a representative of God who has that right, that's the difference. I am not God by nature. I've been giving something that God does. And that picture of authority, uh, you know, there's some really wild examples of the authority that we're going to be given in the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for instance, the apostle Paul says, you will judge angels. You know, in other words, you'll have authority over them because I'm something, because I could beat Gabriel in an arm wrestling match? Uh, No. I know Gabriel had arms. Because we've been given that authority by God. So, you know, the the idea of sitting on the throne, maybe the best explanation of this I've ever heard uh, goes something like this. You know, a few years back, I was invited to a conference in Washington, D.C., and part of the conference in our off time was we went on a White House tour. And, and if you've never toured the White House, I highly recommend it. Just, you know, I was walking around because I love history. I'm walking around like a kid in the candy store. Going, oh, my gosh. And, and then they take you by the Oval Office. And they point in the Oval Office. And, you know, because I'm on the uh, 25-cent uh, tour, you know, we don't get to actually go in the Oval Office. We get to take a peek in the Oval Office. Because in the Oval Office, what do you see? You see the Resolute Desk, they call it the place where the president of the United States does his business. And I am told, I'm not, I've never had firsthand, but I am told that if you make enough of a donation to the right people, grease the right palms, you can not only uh, tour the White House, you can not only sleep in the Lincoln bedroom if you're really a big donor, but they will actually let you go and sit in the chair behind the Resolute Desk. Now, that person, J.P. Gottrocks, who paid all that money and gets to sit in the Resolute Desk, does that person then be able to say, yeah, I'm glad I'm sitting here right now. I've always wanted to nuke Japan, so let's go ahead and do that right now. Yeah, you give me those nuclear codes. I'm sitting in the Resolute Desk. That, that, that means, right, I have that authority. No, all that means is you're sitting in the chair of the guy who has the authority. It's a high honor, right? But it doesn't mean anyone elected your president. That's the distinction there. What Jesus is saying is, and I'll get this because it's mind-blowing, in the eternal state, when you and I are there, seeing the Lord in his glory, you know what he's going to do? He's going to go, hey, kid, come up here. Have a seat right next to me. You know, there's this beautiful picture of John F. Kennedy uh, when he was president. And and the picture is really something because little uh, JFK Jr. is curled up asleep at his dad's feet underneath the Resolute Desk. This beautiful picture of relationship. Now, if I just happen to walk in there and say, oh, I want to sit in that Resolute Desk, or even worse, I want to curl up under the Resolute Desk and have a nap the Secret Service will be escorting me out and I will end up in uh, either Looney Bin or jail, one of the the two. Why? Because I don't have that relationship. But someday Jesus is going to look at you and go, kid, come here. Right here. Have a seat. You believe that? And, And what that tells me is heaven isn't arm's length. Heaven isn't some distant deal, you know, where we're sitting in this big auditorium and, you know, the cheap seats and looking down and maybe you can see Jesus way down there. Have me the binoculars. Maybe I can see him. You know, Billy Graham and all these other people in the front row, you and I are way up. We, we tend to think that way, but it's not. You go, but how in the world can God have time for all these people? Well, he's God, right? He's infinite. He's everywhere at once. And our heavenly experience is going to be so mind-blowing because, you know, we're going to say, oh, man, the Lord let me actually sit on his throne with, with him the other day. I can, I can hardly believe that. You know, oh, yeah, he did the same thing. How could he do the same thing? He was doing that for me. There's more than enough of the Lord to go around for all of us. He loves you. And that's what heaven's all about. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, 
in Jesus Christ, the one you sent. So then continuing on at that point, and not to get back into the seminary portion of the message, but understand as well where that line is. We can have a position of authority, but won't be God by nature. There are things that only God can and will ever be. For example, creator, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We won't share that trait. We have a beginning. We aren't eternal. Psalm 90 and verse 2 notes that God alone has been from everlasting to everlasting. We had a beginning. We will have an end. God is the only one who can have that trait, and it is only because of him that we will exist forever ahead. And likewise, there is no one who will save someone from their sin like God. Isaiah 44, 24 makes that point. So continuing on and concluding. Well, the last line here, because we've run out of time again. Verse 22 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The only other thing I want to point out to you guys is this is the last time the church is mentioned until we get to the end of Revelation, maybe 19, probably more 21. Yeah. Where does the church go? Our next journey in Revelation, we're going to find out. Father, thank you so much that you give us such a beautiful, beautiful and relatable letter. And uh, Lord, uh, what an amazing thing that this church that so many have said, oh, what a bunch of washouts. And you know, Jesus wants to spew them out of their mouth. They're lukewarm. And th- that at the end of it all, you patiently ask for entrance into the individual hearts of those that make up Laodicea. And for those who will hear you knocking and respond, you will come in and invite them to that that wonderful kickback, fellowship-oriented meal, and that you will even give us the privilege of being able to sit with you on your throne, not because we've got the power, but because you do. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing salvation we have. Eye is not seen, nor ear is heard, nor entered into the mind of man those things you prepared for those who love you. And so, Lord, if we're a bit discouraged, maybe a bit down on ourselves, I pray that you would stir up that fire within our hearts, that we wouldn't go the way of this world of spiritual indifference, uh, that, that, Lord, you would cause us to even welcome those corrections that you would bring to our lives, that we would, we would do a 180, we would change our mind about what's really valuable in life and purchase for you gold refined in the fire and white garments and eye salve that we might see. Thank you, Lord, for the true riches that we have as your dearly loved children. In Jesus' name, amen.